0: Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Mayburn, and today I'm joined by Rehan Ismail. Rehan is a wonderful scholar, and I'm delighted that she is now in the UK. She is the His Highness Sheikh Hamad bin Khalifa Al-Tani Professor of Contemporary Islamic Studies at the University of Oxford. And it's a real pleasure that she's in the UK. She's with us, and she's done this fascinating body of work on... Muslim Politics, Clerical Networks, Islamic Studies, Broadly. She's the author of The Absolutely Fantastic Rethinking Salafism, The Transnational Networks of Salafi Ulama in Egypt, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia, published by Oxford University Press. Rehan, it's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to have you in the UK. I'm delighted that we finally got a chance to meet in the flesh uh, in September. So welcome and thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for your kind words, Simon, and I'm really excited to be here.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. Now, Rehan, you've got this wonderful body of work that looks broadly at the interplay and the intersection of, of Islam, Muslim politics and regional politics. But how did you get interested in, in politics and the political broadly? Was this something that was was piquing your interest at a young age? Is it something that came later? What's your, your journey into it?
1: Well, that's a very good question. Um, I've all, I was always interested in studying uh, politics. And when I you know, started my undergraduate degree, I wanted to do political science and international relations. And... I I thought it was always fascinating to learn how people interact with the state, how people interact with their communities, and I think political science really um, helped me understand that. So for me, it was it was easy to actually um, you know study politics and political science, and then later international relations. But when I started my PhD, I questioned my training because I really wanted to know more about Islam, although I did you know Islamic studies in my undergraduate years as well, and, you know, uh, reconnected with Islamic studies when I um, did my master's, but I thought I didn't really have enough training in Islamic studies, Mm -hmm. so I've done uh, political science, IR, but not really Islamic studies. And I decided to do my PhD. Um, I went to the Australian National University. I met with my supervisor at that time, James Piscatori, and we ended up talking about politics and religion. And I thought, this is really interesting. I want to do or I want to study uh, politics and religion in the Middle East. Um, and for me, the Middle East in particular is, is fascinating because I'm half Egyptian uh, and half Malaysian, and I grew up in Malaysia, although I was born in Egypt and lived there for a while. Mm-hmm. But I really wanted to connect with my culture. Um, I really wanted to connect with um, Arabic as a language mm-hmm. as well because, you know, um, we learned Arabic at home, and I went to school and did a lot of Arabic and studied Arabic as well. But I felt that I wanted to engage with um Arabic literature. I wanted to engage with uh, Arabic texts and I thought it was really a wonderful opportunity to study religion and politics but also reconnect with um, my other side, not the Malaysian side but the Egyptian side. Sure. And yeah so if you know if maybe if I, if I can add a bit more as well I ended up choosing a topic um, or studying something I didn't know much about. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's because of um, my ignorance and lack of understanding of the Shia sect. As I mentioned earlier, uh, my father is, is Malaysian and he studied in Egypt. So when he moved to Malaysia, he was teaching Arabic, he taught Sharia and other religious subjects. And in the 1980s, He was invited to attend religious training, um, and the training was delivered by Saudi scholars. And I thought that was really interesting. So he went and attended this religious training in Kelantan in one of the northern states in Malaysia. And he came back and he said that, do you know that? I didn't know this. I mean, Shia, they're not Muslims. Um, and he also said that, do you know the Islamic revolution? We thought is an Islamic revolution, because in Malaysia everybody talked about the Iranian revolution as an Islamic revolution, and he said that these um, religious scholars from Saudi Arabia told him that they were not really, uh, it, it was not really an Islamic revolution, because the Shia are removed from Islam. And as a child, I thought that was really interesting. And when I you know, decided to work on the Middle East and to work on Islam, religion, and politics, I really wanted to explore that question a bit more. Um, and I thought maybe this is really important for me to know more about the Shia and perhaps destabilize my own understanding and why the Saudi ulama in particular um you know, said what they said to my father, or at least some of the scholars who visited Malaysia at the time said what they said to my father. So that really, you know, but perhaps that's my whole journey and how how I actually started, um, you know, studying political science, international relations, reconnected with Islamic studies and Arabic, um, and more importantly, why I chose my PhD topic.
0: Sure. Uh, That's fascinating. I mean, it it is a a deeply personal project then in terms of understanding why things were articulated in the way that they were to your father. Uh, But going back a little bit, were you political growing up? Were you always interested in politics? Or was it just that you thought political science would be a way of kind of understanding the world in a way that, that made sense to you?
1: Yeah, again, a brilliant question, Simon. It's it's really, it, it's very interesting because my father, I think I'm very much influenced by, by, by my father, mm-hmm. um, and he was very supportive of the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and he studied in Egypt. He was always uh, exposed to the networks in Egypt, or Muslim Brotherhood networks in Egypt. And for him, he was always very sympathetic to the Muslim Brotherhood. And when we moved to Malaysia, and my mother, um, she wasn't very political at all. Um, but my father always took us to Islamist rallies mm-hmm. um, in the, in my hometown because I'm from I'm from the north. So we would go to Islamist rallies, and they would often talk about corruption, talk about you know creating an Islamic state, and so on. That was always part of the rhetoric. Although they've actually changed what they've what they've been saying. Um, But at the time, I've always felt, you know, I wasn't really an activist or anything like that, but I've always felt that this is really fascinating for me to learn. And having an Egyptian mother and an Asian father, you were never really encouraged to study politics. (laughs) So they've always wanted me to become a medical doctor. And my mom would say things like, when I'm old and I'm sick, I want to have a medical doctor in my family. And of course... That never happened because we were all not. We were never interested in in hard sciences, yeah. Um, and so we were never really encouraged to study politics. Um, but for me, when I went to university, I did my A levels and I actually studied economics, and I was miserable, <laughs> I hated it. Um, and then. I begged my parents, and I said to my parents, can I please, please change my course, uh, and I really want to study politics. And finally, my father said, you know, do whatever you want to do. Yeah. And and it was, yeah, so, you know, thankfully I've managed to to retain my, my interest as well as, you know, now I'm, sure. I think, very much a, a person who studies politics and do a lot of research in politics and religion.
0: Sure, that's really interesting. Where did you study your for your undergraduate?
1: I did my undergraduate at the International Islamic University in Malaysia. Okay, and and then my master's there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I then migrated to Australia and started my PhD at the Australian National University
0: with James Piscatori.
1: Yeah. one of the, the
0: biggest and best names in this field, right? Well, so what was that like?
1: Yes. It was really amazing. I think, uh, I'm sure so many people know um, James Piscatori's work Uh, as a scholar. Mm -hmm. Of course, he's a brilliant scholar, but also as a person, he is someone um, who's so supportive of researchers, always very kind, very encouraging. And for me, that was really important to have an encouraging supervisor. So I was very, um, very pleased um, when he said yes. Although it was really interesting because he said yes, and he supervised me for six months. It was less than six months. then he moved to the UK. He went to Durham. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "What?" Um, but thankfully he was very kind, so he agreed to continue to supervise me.
0: Okay. Wonderful. And now you have made that same journey across the world to the UK. Which we'll get onto in a little bit. So, Rahan, you have uh, published two absolutely spectacular, fantastic, provocative, insightful, important books, and there there are obviously lines of intellectual thought that that are developed across these two these two texts. But I wonder, for, for people who've not yet read your work, and I strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you to read it, not only if you're interested in Salafism or, or Islamic politics, Muslim politics broadly, or Saudi Arabia, but because it's beautifully written and meticulously researched. And it helps us to better understand the dynamics of what is going on in, in the part of the world that we are interested in. So, for people who've not read it yet... Let's go to, to 2016, Saudi clerics and Shia Islam. What's what's going on in that book please, Rahan? What are you trying to do with it and was this a broad sort of effort to engage with the things that your father was told all those years ago back in, in Malaysia?
1: Well, thank you for your kind words about the book, Simon. Um, I I think I was very much encouraged by by what my father was told in Malaysia. And I really wanted to know more about the Saudi ulama and their views and attitudes towards the Shia. And 2016 was when I published the book. but I started the project in 2009 when I first um, started my PhD. And at the time, we're looking at Saudi-Iranian rivalry. And I thought it was really interesting to look at the Saudi ulama in particular, because they're known for their anti-Shia rhetoric. And 2011 happened in 2012 for the Syrian civil war. Um, the Saudi clerics were very active in their, you know, denunciation of the Shia faith and so on. So for me, I really wanted to understand where they're coming from, Um, particularly their interpretations of Islam, their interpretations of the Shi'a faith. And it was really an interesting journey um, because I went, you know, I started the research knowing that Saudi ulama are really hostile, doctrinally they're very hostile, and for me. What I've realized is that the ulama are also politically motivated. So they're not just focusing on Shia theology, but they're also focusing on Shia practices and theology, of course, but they're also focusing on their political activities. So that's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of um, suspicion, um, not just of the Shia in Saudi Arabia or the Shia in Bahrain or the Shia in Kuwait or the Shia in Iraq, But also the Shia in in Iran and even the Shia in Nigeria, so they're very, very concerned um, with Shia activities and so on. So I felt that it's so important to analyze um, their sermons, their lectures, their publications, and... Look and identify their theological opposition towards the Shia, their jurisprudential opposition towards the Shia, but more importantly, highlight um, the political motivations as well. And what I found, which is really interesting for me, is that the frequency of the anti-Shia rhetoric um, depends on they are local and external circumstances and what's happening in the region. And yes, they do talk about the Shia, but they're very selective as well as to uh, when it comes to which Shia sects to target. So before the Syrian uprising, for example, they never really talked about the Alawites very much, but after the Syrian uprising, when it started, that's when you see um, the overwhelming majority of Salafi clerics Um, discussing the Syrian civil uprising, but also discussing Alawite um, treachery, if you can put it that way, or trying to understand um, the Alawite sect. So, and that's that's what what I've I've uncovered um, when I was working on this project. But if I may add, um, I've also... I've also realized that you can't really overgeneralize when it comes to the Salafi ulama in Saudi Arabia. And that's why in that book in particular, I examine Salafi clerics who are, you know, were very prominent, who are part of the religious establishment, but some obscure clerics as well who have, um, you know, a YouTube account, who are trying to engage with other clerics, who are writing, um, you know, articles and trying to share their views about the Shia. And for me, what I've, you know, I find it really interesting is that there are a number of clerics, although they're in the minority at the time, I think now things have changed, but at the time they're in the minority, they were not as inflammatory as others. And they were very careful and they tried to encourage others to not be too aggressive when it comes to discussing the Shi'a. They also urge others to try and understand the Shi'a faith. Uh, so in many ways, you can't really say all oh, Saudi clerics were critical of the Shia. Yes, they talk about sh- politics and so on, but they urge others to be very careful and not to declare the infidelity of the Shia, um, you know, without investigation and so on.
0: Sure. That's really interesting. I think it's so important because on the one hand, you have the incredibly um, hard line voices who take a very hostile stance such as um, Bin Baz and others who are probably the, the the names that most would associate with this this strand of, of, of thought. But there's also a whole host of other different approaches. So to, to what extent I mean, can we talk about a Saudi Salafism? Is, is that a, a, a useful term or does it just sort of obfuscate and m- sort of oversimplify what is actually a very nuanced and complex set of dynamics?
1: That's an excellent question. It's not an easy question to answer, I think. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, no, that's a brilliant question. And I'm going to take a while to, to, to answer this question. Um, so I think what, what I then... Realized is that we're looking at Saudi religious establishment and it is supported by the state. And in Saudi Arabia, we're looking at the um, legitimacy of Al Saud and how Al Saud um, relied on religious legitimacy granted by the clerics. In exchange, the clerics were allowed to uh, dictate uh, or, how do I say this, Uh, comment on social issues, comment on political issues within the boundaries established by the state. And of course, Muhammad ibn Salman changed many things, but at least uh, this is the dynamics before um, Muhammad ibn Salman came to power and before King Salman, uh, came to power, but one thing I've realised is the, the they, they all emerge from the same tradition, um, and that is the tradition of Ibn Abd Wahab. And Ibn Abd Wahab talked about um, the authenticity of your faith and the importance of removing corrupt practices, the importance of maintaining the oneness of God or Tawhid. Um, and he preached absolute monotheism. So that is so important. You cannot deviate from the correct message. And I'm oversimplifying it here, but I think, you know, largely you can summarize that he was an advocate of uh, the oneness of God and making sure that people do not deviate from, um, you know, the, the true Islam as, as, as he tried to, to, to advocate for. And this is where the Shia in particular, uh, Sufis and other Sunni traditions, um, were targeted. So it's not just the Shia. I mean, Sufism as well was seen as really problematic because, you know, you're looking at shrine visitations, you're looking at Sufi saints, and these are all practices uh, that amount to infidelity according to Ibn Abdul Wahhab's interpretation. And in many ways, because of that state-society or state-clerical alliance, that interpretation persisted, and it contributed to the foundations of the first Saudi state in 1744. And later, with the establishment of the modern Saudi state in 1932, Ibn Saud decided that he was a little bit different, and he challenged um, Wahhabi scholars as well. And in, in, in the book, I talked about Ibn Saud challenging Uh, Wahhabi scholars, and he was really quite interesting because he also felt that he needed to push back um, on on some of the things that the Saudi scholars were saying. And and that kind of arrangement persisted, but what's really interesting as well is the Saudi ruling family really wanted to expand um, their influence to other parts of um, the world. And I think with Petrodollar, they were able to establish links with different associations, encourage Salafi associations in other parts of the world as well, and invite scholars from other parts of the world to be based in Saudi Arabia and to be trained in Saudi Arabia. And in my second book, I talked about how, even though they negotiate what it means to be a Salafi, but in the end, it is about kind of promoting that collective Salafi identity Mm -hmm. uh, to the extent that they are able to. Um, And I think there were so many factors that contributed to that and that's why Saudi Arabia is seen as the face of modern Salafism because, one, they were able to encourage and entice others to um, promote this certain interpretations of Islam and Ibn Saud definitely assisted in fostering that connection transnationally. Um, and at the same time, others were also receptive. So that's why I think when we talk about modern Salafism, it is very much what the Saudi religious establishment, um, you know, put forward. Um, but again, it, it, it's much easier to, to analyze and say, this is what's happening. But when you zoom in, it's actually more complex. It's okay. actually more dynamic. Um, there's so many issues that would, um, challenge us particularly our own understanding of what is salafism. So mm-hmm. for me, I'm always trying to be very careful as well. So of course, it's much easier when you make this broad generalization and trying to understand history and piece everything together, but always question myself and challenge myself as well. You have to zoom in. You have to really uh, look at you know things that others are not looking at, and that's why in my work i tend to look at sermons lectures and trying to understand internal contestations that's taking yeah. place within the movement itself
0: and that's what's fascinating that you've got this this incredible ability to zoom in and zoom out and zoom in and zoom out and look at the interplay of of what a broad sort of broad dynamics of regional politics you talked about saudi and iran and that rivalry and then you've published elsewhere on the syrian civil war and other of regional sets of events but then to con- contextualize the specificities of particular preachers clerics, sermons um, speeches whatever it may be in the broader spatial political geopolitical contexts and that to me is is zooming between these two different, I don't want to say levels of analysis because I think that's very crude, but you're you're able to to look at the interplay of the the intimately tiny and then the broader sort of quote unquote hegemonic, if you will. And that I think is one of the things that really speaks to me about your work that you you neatly trace this interplay because your I mean your second book, Rethinking Salafism: The Transnational Networks of Salafi Ulama in Egypt, Kuwait, and Saudi, does what you've done in the first book, and then compares, contrasts, contextualizes within the shifting political contours of the region, of those specific states, and then the specific dynamics of individuals. And that, I think, is one of the things that really excites me about your work, this ability to centralize agency without disregarding context. If that made any sense whatsoever.
1: Oh, thank you so much. That's very kind of you. <laughs> so, I'm 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 very flattered. I think that's that's um, it's it's really a kind assessment of my work. As as I've mentioned before, I mean I don't know whether I don't think I've mentioned we probably have had this conversation um, when we met in September. I've realized that with my work as well, I think it's so important to continue to question what I'm doing. Um, And sometimes I've realized that there were a few things that I've missed and I wish I can go back and change some of the things that I've said. And I really enjoy, you know, being very critical of my own work. Um because for me I'm not gonna double down when I've made a mistake. <laughs> so I'm just I'm just and, you know, I'm just gonna say, yes, I have and hopefully I'll be able to fix it when or fix my approach when I when I um write um my my next book or my next um research articles and so on. So for me one of the things that I haven't been able to do and and I hope I'll be able to change it as well, is the fact that I, in my first book in particular, I was not able to interview any of the clerics. Um, and, and for me, that's one thing that I really wanted to change. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I know my mutation because it's probably not going to be that easy. I know male um, you know, academics in particular have had the opportunity to interview some of the clerics. Um, I know there are some female scholars who have had the opportunity to interview some of the clerics as well. Courtney Priya, for example, I mean, she's done an amazing work and she's been able to interview um, not Saudi clerics, but I think some, some of the ulama in, in Qatar um, and, and Kuwait in particular. So, um, so for me, the second book, I really wanted to change that. And I felt that I needed to be able you know, to understand where they're coming from. Of course, I listened do sermons and I don't know hundreds of hours probably and I'm not exaggerating because I'm looking at 40 50 um ulama and I'm really trying to understand their views and when I look at this ulama, I'm not just looking at one sermon I try and find everything that I can um you know in terms of what this particular alim has has said mm-hmm. so it's not just you know one sermon or one lecture or one tatua. so looking at everything uh, making sure that I'm not misinterpreting what the, what what they're saying, but haven't been able to talk to them <laughs> um, so for me, you know the second book in particular, I was so excited because I got an Australian Research Council uh, funding um, so this is you know, it's known as DECRA, and I was very happy with an Australian Research Council fellowship and uh, allocated you know. Um, I think around, not much, you know, in the Australian context, it is a lot So 20,000, 25,000 Australian dollars to actually travel to Kuwait. And then COVID-19 hit. And I was like, really? So it was so hard. And I was already working on my book um, at the time. So everything that I wanted to do, um, I had to recalibrate and so on. one thing i've managed to do is to contact these clerics online and i thought it's really fascinating because they have celebrity satellite shows i've been doing that before before 2019 or 2020 anyway so calling into their television programs um because they're highly popular so i've managed to do that and ask them questions and they were so receptive so i thought that was really interesting. that's another way of me um really managing my limitations as well but i do hope for my next book project um you know i'm 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 gonna make a point to you know to at least meet and talk and discuss and that is something that i uh, you know i'm constantly thinking about as well
0: amazing it's so exciting i mean just to to reinforce what you've just said there rehan the the appendices of your books are a treasure trove of material for people who want to to go and see lists of sermons and videos and things, um, and it's just a testament to the the huge depth of research that you've you've done. Um, so it's all very very exciting, and I do hope for your sake that you can you can do those interviews because I know that you will do wonderful things with those conversations. So very exciting. That would
1: be great. I hope so. Thank you,
0: Rayhan. We've been talking for a while, and I'm conscious that with your new position. As Professor of Contemporary Islamic Studies at the University of Oxford, you are someone in great demand. So I must leave it there. But a huge thank you for your time just now. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you.
1: Not at all, Simon. I think, you know, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss my research. And I'm really honored to be able to have this conversation with you.
0: Thank you so much. A huge thank you to Rehan for her time just now. It's been a real pleasure talking with her, and do check out her wonderful books, 2016's Saudi Clerics and Shia Islam, and 2021's Rethinking Salafism, the Transnational Networks of Salafi Ulama in Egypt, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia, both of which published by the wonderful Oxford University Press. As always, a huge thank you to you for listening. Until next time.